today we're getting into the good stuff. Today we're getting into the Sefirot. I would say the Sefirot is the main course of Kabbalah. If you just start learning the Sefirot before you learn anything, you'll be very lost because it would sound, depending on who's teaching it, like a pop psychology class. We'll, we'll, we'll explain in a second. Oh, okay. So it's important to remember the elements of Kabbalah before we learn the Sefirot. The first element is that what we're talking about is God and the creation of the world, the creation of human beings leading up to creationism, that there was a creator and we are the created. The reason why I am prefacing with this is because I have no choice. It's so easy when you're studying this to start putting God-like features to human beings. The opposite of anthropomorphism. What is the opposite of the anthropomorphic? Is there an opposite word? Pomorphic antha. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really... It's really easy to start learning this. This is, remember, this existed in a world before we were going to university and learning psychology. Uh, for me, as a student of psychology, I think that psychology, especially you know the, the classic psychologies that I learned in university, the Freudian psychologies, etc., fall short to this. This is much, and I, I'm not even saying it in a, in a flattering way to Kabbalah. I'm saying it in a very practical way. That for me, studying psychology, and then also before I studied psychology, I had a, a mastery of this, and even afterwards a mastery of this. I don't know how psychologists really truly understand human being without this. I can tell, like when I was in my in my twenties, I was I was going through a period of, of a lot of, uh, of doubt and a lot of confusion, just confusion about human. And, and I was also reading a lot of psychology, and it just things weren't making sense. I was just I just found the the categories too oversimplistic. You know, the id, the ego, the superego. It was like, okay, I get it. It was a little bit too simplistic. Even the Jungian uh, conceptions of the collective unconscious. It's like beyond a certain point, it's like, okay, like what am I supposed to do with this? It's like. There's the anima, there's the animus, there's the mother, the great mother, there's this, there's that. It's like, all right. And then, like, it didn't explain. And somebody gave me a book on Kabbalah, and I read the uh, Sefirot, right? And just just basic, read it on my own, you know? And I just read it a few times, and I was just like... And, I, and then I, I stopped studying. I, I never went back to it necessarily. I didn't, like, keep studying Kabbalah. But just the, the framework of it was like, it, it relaxed me so much. It was like, oh... Okay, like this makes sense. Like, there's a pl this all this energy I had in me, this confusion. It's like now, like it made general sense, and I could like I, I left it to the side. I didn't keep studying Kabbalah. I didn't become religious. I didn't like become more observant at all. It's just the framework of it was so. It just felt naturally logical in terms of the tensions I was feeling, you know. And then I just let it go, and but it, it was just more. It had more explanatory power, I feel, than everything else I'd read in psychology. I have a little dream. My dream is just as mindfulness has become standard in universities for medical students mm. and for etc., I would like to see Kabbalah become at least a 101 class for psychology students. Mm. <laughs> yeah. You'd, have, you'd almost have to like change its name. I, because I, people would be like, oh, it's esoteric and it's... It's yeah, well, let's, I'm going to, again, because every teacher, every, every teacher that would teach you these ideas would teach it to you, obviously, through their own lens. Mm -hmm. So since, uh, since my lens is one of psychology, I'm going to teach it through that lens. And I hope that, A, it'll be more connectivity for you because it's something that's more familiar to you than just kind of talking about esoteric ideas. And B to also figure out a way to, um, to connect it to a higher power. And that is why I'm making this whole preface before I start. 
that it's really important to know that there's a creator and we are the creator's creation. And everything we're talking about is a result of that. So, there are 10 sefirot. Three are intellectual and seven are emotional. Kabbalah's goal is to create a harmony, a balance, and a fusion between the heart and the mind. The mind being the driving force for our decisions and the heart being the motivator to actually getting them done. The mind is in control. It uses the heart as the inspiration, the motivation, and the guidance. Not the guidance, but the, the feeling. Kabbalah believes there's no brain in the heart, there's no heart in the brain. They are two opposite, complementary elements of a human being. Today we're going to focus on the top three, the brain elements. The three, first, the sefirot are called Chachma, Bina, and Da'at. Acronym is? Chabad. Chabad. If you want to know where the word Chabad comes from, it's an acronym for Chachma, Bina, and Da'at. The translation, now there's many translations that can be given. My trans, these are my own translations. I've never seen them anywhere else. And so you have to take them from these. I'm not satisfied. Mm. I want to tell you what most people translate them as. Chachma is wisdom. Mm. Bina is understanding. Mm. And Da'at is knowledge. I think that makes absolutely no sense. I am going to translate them as follows. Chachma is concept. 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 Bina is conceptualization. And Da'at is internalization. Because of understanding also maybe. I don't know if it's understanding. Yeah, internalization. That's good. Um, is this connected to like, the counting of the Omer when you... Uh, yes. Yes, absolutely. The, the, the Sefirot are used in the counting of the Omer, seven times seven, but it's not, these are not. It's the seven emotional Sefirot that we're focusing on during the counting of the Omer. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're going we're gonna to talk about those in a, in a, little, a little later. I just want to see one so, thing. Yeah. So this is all the intellectual... The, the first three are the intellectual. Yes. Yeah. Just. Thought I had it here. I did a course a while ago on Kabbalah 101. And I wanted to see if I had my notes here. Okay. So let's go in. Let's start talking about it. Yeah. I'm going to spend a little more time than I have on the other ideas because I do think that these are really important and very practical in our lives. Kabbalah emphasizes the refinement of character through meditation and ideas that are way beyond the daily, the mundane affairs. The purpose for this approach is the necessity to be totally removed from the ordinary day-to-day mode of thinking and to be living within this world, but staying above it. That we should be workers, walkers, movers in this world, because this is the world of action, Yet, we need to make sure at all times that we have risen a little above it. It is a crucial, crucial element in Kabbalistic thinking.
here's the reality. The reality I, I see now, there's such a huge industry of these retreats and silent retreats and um, trying to find balance and peace and trying to to find work study balance and work anxiety balance and <clears throat> not having to go on antidepressants or whatever else is work out there. Work-life work balance. Life is like the biggest category. <laughs> no, I mean, and, and, and so think about this for a second. People spend money they earned in an earnest way. They put it in a bank account just for the purpose of taking that desired vacation. Why? Think about this on a logical level. You, you, you are working, I can tell you getting completely life. anxious so that you can get away from your work yeah. <laughs> and well, spend the money that you made to not be anxious. You know, you know like the old story about the guy that's fishing? Yeah. And uh, the guy comes over to me and says, you know, you're catching a fish for yourself. Why do you catch two? He says, what am I going to do with two? He says, two. With two, you can eat one you can sell one. Sell one. Oh, interesting. What am I going to do with that? He's like, then you can start every day. You're going to collect more and more and more money. And then what are you going to do? Then you're going to buy some real estate and you make some investments. And then what are you going to do? And eventually, as time goes on, you'll have a big business going on. So, oh, that's interesting. What am I going to do then? And then, then you're going to sell your business and you're going to retire and go fishing. But uh, practically speaking, a lot of people feel that they don't have a choice because if they are going to hold on to a job, the job is going to press them like a lemon and then they need the vacation just out of uh, self-preservation. Well, in reality, people have choices. Yes, but it's, it's we always have a choice. Of course. We always have a choice. Of course we do. We have a choice. But the the choice can of... be not living perhaps the lifestyle that you think that you're deservant of. The choice can be, oh, I mean, you can make up, you know, your own choices. Of course, but that's of course. the reality. <laughs> At the end of the day, <clears throat> why would someone do this? Because... They desire to rethink their values and the purpose of their life and their relationships. In order to successfully accomplish this goal, you have to be removed from the, the hustle and bustle of life. So the first thing that we need to try to ask ourselves the question of why we're working or why we're doing what we're doing is we have to remove ourselves. You know, to use an extreme example, if you want to stop gambling, don't do it when you're in the casino. If you want to talk about anxiety and stress that's work-related, don't do it when you're at work. There's no purpose in that. You have to remove yourself. So people are getting away. Far, far away. Kabbalah has a very different view on all of this. Completely different view. Kabbalah teaches... that in order to accomplish the task of trying to get rid of anxiety or trying to kind of focus ourselves, we have to remove ourselves from the daily grind, from the work, from the midst of the chaos. But how do we do it? We don't do it through running away physically. We do it through running away emotionally and psychologically. We can do it through meditation, through mindful activities. Now, within Jewish meditation, there's all types of practices. So what Kabbalah recommends is in order to be able to properly meditate, in order to be able to properly understand our lives, we have to go through the steps of understanding who we are on an intellectual level and on an emotional level. Kabbalah demonstrates the power of total removal from daily affairs, at least during one's prayer, 
that during the time that we pray every day, the purpose of prayer is like a vacation. The same impact that somebody would get from going on a silent retreat for 10 days, they should get from an hour of prayer in the morning. The impact can be enormous, affecting the rest of the day. What's interesting on the Kabbalistic principle that I think is so different is that the purpose of working is not to spend a week a year at a retreat. You have to do an hour a day at your retreat. It's a very different philosophy on what the retreat is and how to, and how to experience it, which means if you, in the morning, if you spend your hour a day in the morning in your silent retreat, you're going to end up having gone to work on vacation. Your whole day is going to be a vacation. These meditative thoughts must incorporate experience, yet transcend it. They must be within this world, but stay above it. If the meditation is abstract, then the person is not going to be able to relate to it. The person is not going to be able to connect to it. The meditation is going to pass as a wind without a person being moved to change of character and values. The purpose of the meditation is for change of character and values. That's the purpose, which means if you want to go and you want to just do a silent meditation and uh, on the breath, it's a very beautiful thing. I'm not against that, but Kabbalistic meditation is not at all like that. It's more mindful meditation. The idea is, is that it's going, it's going to be meditating on something that's very real very practical in the lives of the particular individual. And as a result of that, it moves them and changes them and gives them a new perspective on their lives. So Kabbalistic meditation is the abstract element, the the breath, the focus, the mindfulness, and also combining it with real-world down-to-earth issues. What are these real-world down-to-earth issues? These issues begin with the self, the way the person is made, who we are, and what are our experiences. The, The first quote that you would find in Kabbalah regarding this is from the prophet, it says, from my flesh I perceive godliness. Meaning, the better we understand our flesh, that is ourselves, the better we can understand God. We'll be back after a quick break. Are you tired of swiping right on every dating app out there and still getting nowhere? Are you convinced that you'll forever be alone? Surrounded by nothing but uh, cats and empty takeout containers? <laughs> Hi, I'm Aliza Ben Shalom, the host of the new show, Jewish Matchmaking, which you can find on Netflix. And I'm the love rabbi, Rabbi Yisrael Bernath, and we're inviting you to join us for Matchmaker Matchmaker. Each week, we'll answer one of your pressing relationship questions, from how to get over your ex to how to deal with your partner's annoying habits. So if you're ready to laugh, uh, cry, or maybe even find love, then tune in to Matchmaker Matchmaker, and it's available now wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, who said this? As, uh, Ezekiel. Ezekiel? Maybe Isaiah. I'm confusing, maybe. Okay. One of the two. It's one of the prophets. And I guess you can also reverse it. Yeah, absolutely. But but the fact is that we're real people. Yeah. So you can reverse it all you want, but at the end of the day, we have to to understand ourselves. Yeah. It's funny because this is, to me, it's it's, it's related to the concept of mimale, in a way. And it's, um, I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday who's... uh, you know, from the Christian faith, and he, he's like always rebelling against against Christianity, and he, he's like very, 
he, he's very like uneasy with a lot of the teachings that he was brought up with in the church and he's always against it. And I always tell him like, I, I think you're secretly Jewish. Like you don't want to admit it. Like, he, but he, he also rejects Judaism because he sees like Judeo-Christian as being the same thing. And I just keep telling him, no, it's not the same. It's very, very different. And we're talking about the, this idea of, um, I mean, this statement here says it very poetically and very well from the, from my flesh, I perceive godliness. And the memare is like, for us, uh, there is no, there, there is probably uh, some part of God that we just cannot understand through nature and through this world because it's just, it, right? It's the sovev. It's just completely above our understanding. Yes, there is that concept as well. However, obviously, God also partly speaks through nature, right? And we don't have this division between like, okay, this mechanical world and then this other conceptual world of God. We don't have that, that, that concept. For us, when there's Elohim, Elohim is God speaks, speaks through the forces of nature. Uh, when I see this from my flesh, I perceive godliness is through our experience, we can understand God as well. We don't have this, um, this uh, separation between the flesh and the divine. We don't have this hard wall between the two, right? It's just that we can understand God through nature. We can understand God through our flesh, but we can't understand God completely through our flesh and through nature. And so it's, 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 we don't have the same, uh, same conception as, as they grew up in Christianity. Yeah. Yes, yes, and no. Uh, the example that I, that I would give is the example of, of academia. There's something that, that bothers me tremendously about the academic world, and that is the people who are teaching it have, don't have, have a lot of experience in the theoretical elements of it, but not in the practical elements of it. Mm-hmm. If I, if I was a teacher of Kabbalah, but I never incorporated it into my life, you would not be able to learn from me. It would. I mean, you, you would be able to, to learn the pure disembodied theory. You know, the words. That's, that's the not... problem. And, and that's the problem with a lot of the educational philosophies in our society is that it's the disembodied theory and not the practical. Mm-hmm. It's it very interesting. I really like uh, film and, and I've written a few screenplays. And so I, there was a guy that was here and he is a professor in one of the universities here and he teaches screenwriting. And so I said to him, and I was talking about, you know, it's a little bit of, so I figured he's a professor of screenwriting. He probably has written uh, a bunch of screenplays that have been uh, successful. So what have you written? Oh, nothing. So, so I don't understand. So you are teaching people who their goal is to write a successful screenplay, but you've never done one yourself. Mm. So all of the things that you're teaching, you don't even know if they're going to work. Well, we see that in law as well. So I, I know a lot of law teachers at, at McGill Law School. They're my good friends, and I know them very well. And I talk to them. They're great academics. They're fantastic. They haven't, like been in front of a judge and had a client who's like this issue is really affecting their lives and had to deal with another lawyer who plays like dirty procedural tricks and like have the judge like just really obsess on like one detail that when you looked at the case on paper you're like okay well this is just this and then no no the judge for them this particular point is everything now so now you've got to find a way to talk to this person. And, but you're scared to talk to this person because they're going to make a decision. So they've never gone through those emotions. They've never gone through those steps. They've never gone through dealing with these things in a three-dimensional way to understand the essence of law, of what they're teaching. All the, uh, and we always talk about this in a way. And one of, one of my friends is very aware of this. He's like, look, it's our professional deformation. We talk about these things in theory to a bunch of 19-year-olds who know nothing. <laughs> Right. So, I mean, obviously they know more than the student. Right. But at the end of the day, they're lacking a very, very important part of the tangibility of, of what they're teaching. Tremendously. Yeah. Tremendously. Yeah. And, and I think that that is some of the professions in the fields of study in our society are, are lacking tremendously as a result of that. And, you know, one of the great questions that a lot of students that I speak to when they leave university is, did university prepare me for life in the real world? And we all know the answer to that. And that is a big problem. Did, you know, and, and it's, and it's fascinating because, you know, you, then you ask someone who's gone through yeshiva, did yeshiva prepare me for life in the rabbinic world? Well, 
To a certain extent, no. But to a greater extent, yes. Because these people were living that life. Exactly. So when you ask them questions. And that in the Kabbalistic world is the key. The, uh, uh, Kabbalah would say the following. Do not, the same way that what we eat becomes us, that you look at what the food on your plate and realize that it's going to become part of your flesh and blood. And if you want to eat that, if you want that cookie to be part of you, then it's a choice that you make by putting it in your mouth. That consciousness is a very powerful consciousness. So the same way that what we eat becomes us, who we study from becomes us. So that old principle, if you can do, if you can't teach, is very anti-Jewish and anti-Kabbalistic. If you can do, and if you can do better, teach it. That's what we believe. And you should continue doing as you're teaching. And you should continue doing as you're teaching. And you should continue, and not only that. Because there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's an enhanced learning that happens. When you teach there's two when questions. Because often people stop doing and they just teach, and I think that's a mistake. There's two questions. There's three questions that you ask your teacher before, you, before they teach you. Number one is, do you have a teacher? That's the first question. Do you have a teacher? Not did you have a teacher? Not did you have a teacher at some point in your life? Do you currently have a teacher? That's number one. Number two is, do you currently practice what you teach? Do you have skin in the game? Do you currently practice what you teach? Do you have a teacher? Do you currently practice what you teach? And number three is, do you have a set time for study every day? So let's, like the law, the law professor. Do you have a teacher? Do you have a mentor that mentors you in law? Do you practice law? And do you have a fixed time of studying law every day? That would, that would be the classification Kabbalah would give for having a good law professor. Not how often do you publish? Does the teacher, exactly, their whole thing is a game of publishing papers, like three papers. Uh, not years. how often do you do research? Yeah. That's not interesting to us. Does the Kabbalah consider that, does a teacher have to be alive? Does the teacher have can to be, be a alive? person that you study all the time? Yes, you can, yes. You Your can teacher does the dead. Oh, okay, okay. So, so no, so, no, so there's two things. You can study, there's, there, there's your teacher, you can be, but you must have a mentor mm. that's alive. Mm. You have to have somebody you're able to ask questions to. Because if you're not asking really good questions, then you're not studying. So you can't answer or you can't ask a really good question to a dead person. So yes, can you study the teachings of some great philosophers or some great uh, lawyers? Yes, but you need to have someone who is your mentor currently. It's very hard. I mean, in law, law is, if you I, I'm, I'm not, I'm I know, using know, law because you used I, it. I, I know. I don't know anything about law. I'm, I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about my field. Like in my field, it's very hard because the people who have the practical experience and that their true knowledge, it's a very selfish profession. So people will practice in their firms and yeah, it's like you've learned from them at, at a particular point in time, but they're not going to necessarily make themselves available. Maybe it's, maybe that's one of your life's missions to yeah. change that. Yeah. <laughs> I've given up on it. <laughs> No, but I was just saying not to change it, to change it for yourself. Yeah. That you become a mentor yeah. to people, which means even if you, even though you're very busy and you have your own firm now, you can become a mentor to people because that's the point of it. Of course, absolutely. You know, and that's what's a very interesting, you know, it, it's, it's a fact in, in the, in the rabbinic world is a strong, strong part, strong element of mentorship, mm. strong element. And you're not allowed to get paid for your mentorship. It's very important. That's amazing. And the reason why is because that is part of the, the, the idea. And I want to tell you, I mean, and as the years go on, I get more and more and more calls from different rabbis with questions. And I make sure, I mean, I always, now, I, now I, I tell them I have to, I'll get back to you within the week. Because it's just at a point where yeah. I, 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 I can't. Yeah. But I make sure to make time for, for a lot of these young rabbis 
to be able to spend time with them and to, to talk to them because it's such an p- important element. And, and if we don't make time for that, then what's going to happen? And I do believe to a certain extent that is why there's a certain wholesomeness that stayed within the rabbinic world. If I can be so bold to say that. But I would say that even this, what we're describing now, the hard wall between theory and practice that we see so clearly in Western uh, academia, okay? Even that, to me, has roots in Christianity, has roots in the hard wall between Absolutely. this world and the other division world. Division of st- religion and state. Was the church and state? The divi- so it's a division between um, the, the reality of the flesh, the material reality, which is viewed as profane and like dirty and not good and whatever, and the pure reality out there of God, which is just pristine and perfect and right. So there's this hard wall between the two. And today it's like, when you talk to these professors, not only do they not have the practical experience, but they look down on people who have practical experience because it's like the people who have practical experience, they take our beautiful theories and they dirty them with like the daily reality of day-to-day life or human emotions or subjectivity or money or like they see money as, as see like even the view of money as being profane and bad and whatever. It goes back to this, this separation of this world and this other world. And um, so it, 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 you see the problem has many manifestations to it, right? You can see it in the, this division between theory and practice, the division between the flesh and the divine, the division between like, you know, when I learn something, it's like, it's gotta be perfect. If it's not perfect, it's not God. And I think in Judaism, we have a, a view where it's like, we have to use everything that we know, including with our senses to develop that relationship with God but also there, transcend it. If there was one Hasidic master who lived about 200, a little over 200 years ago, who was a purist. Mm. One day, one of his students came to him and he said, I found one of the copies of your teachings on the floor in the street. And he was so upset. He was so upset. He said, how can this be it's such a holy beautiful teaching, how can it be in the street? And he stopped teaching. Today, nobody, nobody learns any of his stuff. <laughs> we don't even, we, I mean, we have, we have some of his books. We, they're barely used. Compared to all the other books, I would say a fraction of a percent. Didn't Rabbi Nachman want all his stuff destroyed? <clears throat> destroyed, yes. Yeah. Somebody came to the Rebbe 30 years ago and said that he had found a bunch of the Rebbe's teachings like near uh, in the gutter in the street. And the Rebbe smiled and he said, ah, somebody must have been studying it and it fell out of their hands. <laughs> <laughs> That's the world that we live in. If you're going to cr- stay to your purest philosophy or your purest theory, you're not going to get anywhere. And, and it's a very important element, and that's why I'm spending a little more time on it. Who your teacher is, is how you are going to perceive the study that you're being taught. I always, I always judge. There's, 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 there's thousands and thousands of paintings of the Rebbe. Wherever you go, people have painted the Rebbe, right? We have one right mm-hmm. here. I always see the eyes of the artist in the painting. And that's okay. It's an artist. Mm-hmm. Through, through their eyes, they're perceiving a picture of someone else. It's not a picture. It's not a, a photostatic copy. It's an artist. Somebody had to take a canvas, a blank canvas, and create a, a painting of an individual. That is the goal of the artist. So it would make sense that the eyes of the artist should be seen in the eyes of the picture that was created. It was done by a human being. It was a real person. It wasn't a robot. It wasn't a, uh, you know, that would make sense. It had to be through their eyes. So you're going to see their eyes in the picture. So I say to you, be careful which artist you take your picture from. If you, want to, if you want to have a picture of a holy person in your home, 
because that's something that you want to, that's something that's valuable to you, that you feel like, you know, the presence of a picture of a holy person is something that, you, whether you have young children, you want your young children to see that picture. If it's a painting, be careful where you get your painting from, because there, it, the artist will be carried in that painting, not only the holy person. And that's exactly the way Kabbalah perceives education. That's not a Bodhisattva? What? Like having a picture of... No, the person. No, it's to... no because the same way we you'd have it's not a vodazar to have a picture of your grandparents in your house. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We consider this our spiritual grandparents. Yeah. It's, not, it's not idolatry. No, we're not saying this is God. Yeah. We're not telling our children yeah. this this great rabbi is uh, is you know the father, the son, and the Holy Ghost. Mm-hmm. We're saying that this is the same way you'd have a, your grandparents on the wall and say, "Look, I want to tell you." You come, your grandparents came from this place and that place and they were holy people and they were special people. We have a very strong Jewish philosophy. We believe very strongly that our children should know they come from greatness. There was a rabbi and I, I, I'm not here for the debate. That's not the point of me saying this. I'm not debating it, even though I have my other, my own thoughts on it. There's a rabbi who said that it's so important to tell your children they come from greatness if they didn't come from greatness, make up a story. <laughs> That's how strong that philosophy is within Judaism. I'm not saying nobody should be making up any stories about anyone, anytime. But... You should embellish it a little bit. Yeah, go to paper magazine. But, yeah. But it's really important that a child knows that they come from greatness. I want to tell you how amazing your grandparents were. And as a grandparent... I know that you have the opportunity. You should tell your grandchildren. I want to tell you about my grandparents and how amazing they were. Well, it's, it's, it's also the idea that there's value in the past, which uh, current generations are brought up with the complete opposite mentality, which is if something is not new and current, then it is, has completely zero value. And so all of the accumulated experiences and perceptions and, 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 and advancements, spiritual advancements of human beings for millions and millions of years, let's say, that... Are, are useless. They are garbage. You know? They're considered garbage. My son came to me yesterday. Is there a tow truck? Uh, yeah. Maybe they're towing my car. Yeah. No, no, no. They're, they're doing some... My, uh, my son came to me yesterday. And he saw, me, he saw me praying in the morning. I often like to pray in the house in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't go to synagogue for a number of reasons. But... One of the side benefits of not being in a synagogue is my children get to see me pray. And often they'll come and, especially my young ones, they'll come and sit next to me and they'll take a, a book and they'll, they'll join me. And so my son comes over to me and he says, in a very innocent way, why do you do that? You know, he's sitting there playing with his Lego. He just got a new Lego set from Hanukkah. He's all excited about it. He's like, why do, you, why do you spend so much time? You're saying the same words over and over again. So I love these teaching moments. These are my favorite parts about being a parent. You have these random teaching moments where you really can have an opportunity to say something. I could have said anything, right? Because it's very special. It's very holy. And so I use this, this, this example. I said, my great-grandfather, which is your great-great-grandfather, my great-grandfather was a very famous rabbi very well-known, very respected rabbi, the chief rabbi of Budapest. He was a holy man. He was in, lived in a world in a time that I don't know anything about. But I know he was a holy man. And I don't have very many ways of connecting with this great holy man who I am and you are a descendant of him. But there's one thing I know. Every morning he said, Ashrei. I have no idea what Ashrei means. I've studied Ashrei for a long time. I can't tell you have. I know the translation of it. I know who wrote it. I know some of the commentaries behind it. I don't really know what Ashrei means, but I know he, he did. He definitely knew what Ashrei means. So I just close my eyes and I start every morning, Ashrei Yoshve. And every morning I say, El Zeda, great grandfather. Please, your soul's up there in heaven somewhere. You know what this means. Take it where it belongs. And I don't know if many people have many ways of connecting to their great-grandfather who they never met. But I do. You do. You do. Because we have the ability every morning to say the same words that they said. And that's what I told them. 
And I think that experience that we can give to our children of connecting to the past, not just in an idea, oh, I want to tell you a story about your great-grandfather. No, no, no. I want to tell you what your great-grandfather prayed. And not only what your great-grandfather prayed, you can do the same. And if you don't know what it means, it's okay because he did. And you have the ability to connect to his soul because we are not isolated people living in an isolated time. We are beautiful people living in an expanse of time that is beyond this, this generation. We come from greatness and we will become greatness. And I think that is one of the secret sauces of the Jewish people. Instead of telling our children that we come from Neanderthals, we tell our children we come from greatness. Instead of, instead of telling our children that at one point in time your ancestors were running around caves, pounding their chests and didn't know anything about anything, and you are going to be an enlightened person. Instead of telling our children, and this is a, it's a, I know I'm opening a can of worms here, but I'm good at that. Instead of telling our children that your great-grandmother couldn't vote, we tell our children that you come from greatness, meaning that our young girls today have no idea what it means to live in a world where they're not able to have the same rights. And I believe, and again, I know I'm opening up a certain element here, but I believe that there's a new element to women's rights, to, women's, to, to, to speaking to young women about women's rights that the, a generation that remembers women not having rights is gonna be able to be strong feminists. But the true new, the, the new generation of feminists, they have no connection to that. They don't know a world where they can't go to university, where they can't vote, where they can't have to a certain extent. I know there's always the equal pay and other issues that, but, but a young woman that's living in the world today, I have three young women living in my home, they don't understand the world. They, the, the, the world is their gefilte fish. There's also, there's also some very dangerous uh, ideas in, in, in like modern, uber-progressive thought, okay? So you, you paint the whole, you paint the past in one color. So it's like women didn't have the right to vote. They didn't have the right to work. Therefore, they were just victims and they were like doing nothing really valuable. But, you know, I look at just my grandmother, like the type of life she lived, and then her grandmother, and, and I just we go back a little bit. And it's like, well, number one, is it true that you only live a valuable life if you work? Is it true that it's only through work that you can live a meaningful, valuable life? Because it seems to me, my grandmother made the choice not to work because she wanted to be with her kids, and she basically raised us, right, her grandchildren. Yeah, so that's a different definition of work. And, and this idea that they weren't working is complete nonsense. I look in America today, I have friends like whose the wife chooses to stay at home because it's going to be cheaper that way than if she worked and had to send her kids to school and has to spend all this money, like sending the kids to day school and this and that. So it, it's like, it's crazy this idea that they didn't work. They worked super hard. And the work they did had actual economic value, not just... Not just like a raise the generation spiritual value. No, no, no. It had hard value. Okay, and their children were getting raised by their mother or their grandmother. That connection that they had, the house was always full. It just seems to me. I don't want to romanticize because there were there were obviously issues at the political level, right? Like I'm not going to contest. Look, that. it's very important. There's no question that this women's rights needed to happen, and it's right. But today, today is a very. Interesting. But it's not true that these women. Let me had go no to a, that They were victims, and they didn't work, and that they. It's not true. It's, I see women's rights is not sitting well. Let, let me go to, no. to a different. No, but I'm, I'm just going to say that it also depends where you are. Even mm. even today, if you're if you're in India, if you're yeah, in Africa, yeah. if, you're, if, if if you're in Lebanon or Syria. It's a very different, like we're None talking of this justifies political discrimination of women. That, 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 no, that's no, just a ridiculous. Today, to, yeah. today, you know, women don't have. Well, that's what, that's right. what, it's not only women, it's, it's, that's pretty much with everybody, you know, and those yeah, through, today, have much worse, but much worse. I'm, I'm not, well, I'm not saying. Like, I, 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 yeah. I, I would say a privileged, a privileged Western woman is a lot further advanced compared to like an immigrant male uh, you know what I mean? Like ninety nine percent of I think males the, are also not talking about the gender issue. Let, let me give you a classic, a classic example: the example of slavery. The I heard an African American teacher talking about slavery, 
And it, it bothered me, the way that he was talking to the children who were African-American primarily about their grandparents who were slaves. We talk to our children about our grandparents who were slaves. It's one of the most powerful moments of our year. We sit around the table eating matzah, telling our children the story of slavery. But how do we tell our children the story of slavery? In what context do we do? We do it, number one, with a celebration. Yeah, in the context of the liberation. In the context of the liberation, not in the context of the slavery. How else do we tell it in the Haggadah? What's the narrative of the Haggadah? The way, the Haggadah doesn't really tell the story of slavery. It tells the story of the, again, the liberation from slavery. It tells the story of how we went from slaves to a free people. That's right. And, and then it also doesn't sugarcoat. That's right. And it also doesn't sugarcoat the burdens of freedom and all the resistance to freedom that we had, that the population had. And Some what do we do when we talk about God mating out punishment against our oppressors? We spill the wine. Why are we spilling the wine? Because we're not happy about it. We're not speaking about it in a positive way. We're not saying, down with the stupid slave drivers. That's not what we tell our children. We tell our children compassion for all people, even your slave drivers. And while we're mentioning something that allowed us to be emancipated, we're going to spill a little bit of wine to show that we also have compassion for those who enslaved us. That narrative that we teach our children is such a powerful slavery to freedom narrative. I think Martin Luther King, he spoke the words of Moses. Mm -hmm. I see the promised lands. He used those words. Yeah. Yeah, uh -huh. there, there were two branches of the civil rights. There was Martin Luther King and then there was Malcolm X. Right. And today, we know which one is the more dominant. Unfortunately. One. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. But Martin but Luther King's uh, uh, messaging and his, uh, his, uh, his, the way that he explained like, the civil rights movement, right? He didn't, he didn't uh, prone for a, let's call it, again, without getting too political, a kind of a narcissism of victimhood, Look, right? In, in he the, didn't prone for that. He just said, stop the discrimination so that we can be treated like everybody else. And then whoever among us can succeed on the merits of society will succeed. We're not looking for, and this is a whole discussion, by the way, in civil right. rights. He wasn't necessarily looking for advantages to be given to his people by virtue of the fact that they were oppressed. This is what I know. I know there's no Malcolm X Day, but there's an MLK Day. And the kids get off of school, and people are off of work. It's a very big day in the U.S., and it's a very important day. And I believe, and I was saying to this teacher, that I think that that day needs to be turned into a Passover Seder. <laughs> and that, and that African-American families should be sitting around the table, celebrating emancipation, and telling the stories of their grandparents as an obligation with a celebratory dinner. Yeah, I, because even this, even, you, even... You need inspirational black leadership to take that on. Yes. Yeah. Because even, even your relationship with the surrounding society... But, and I never thought of that, but I think that's... Yeah. Yeah, but even your relationship with your surrounding society, if the message is that, like, we were oppressed and we're still oppressed today, What's, what kind of relationship do you have with surrounding society? The truth is, in order to be emancipated, there were millions of people in the surrounding society that helped as part of that process, right? That was also part of the reality. The reality is more complex. Yeah, there are still people today that would have slaves if they could. That's true. That's absolutely true. There are people today that still have racial discrimination and gender discrimination. That's absolutely true. However, in the end, let's be honest, they didn't win out to those people. They still exist. Those processes still exist. But they're weak. We defeated them as a society. Let's, and that's what you're saying. Let's put the emphasis on that, right? On what ended up happening from, from a positive perspective and take responsibility and bear the weight of freedom. It's also another thing. If you're still oppressed today, you are not responsible ultimately for your own life, right? Because you still have a victimizer exactly. that's holding you back. So it, it, it goes against the message of personal responsibility and taking on the weight of freedom. And you see in the Torah, we, we say like human beings will always have the temptation to go back to slavery. 
right? Take a look at, we don't want the burden of freedom. Take a look at this this week's Torah portion, for example. You you know who my favorite biblical character is? Joseph? Joseph. Yeah, me too. That's why we get along so much. We're Joseph people. (laughs) Joseph is a powerful, powerful message. A powerful message. It's a message of not being a victim. He didn't turn to his brothers and say, you ruined my life. Mm-hmm. He didn't turn to his brothers and say, look at what you did to me. Mm-hmm. Or look at what I did in spite of you. Mm-hmm. That wasn't a motivating element in his life. He saw everything in the eyes of, through God, through the lens of God. He saw everything that happened in his life. How he was able to spend some 18 years in prison 18 years in prison thinking about that he's not a victim, I don't understand. How he was able to be a slave thinking that he wasn't a victim, he went from royalty to slavery to prison. And all that time, throughout all that time, when his brothers told his father he was dead, His family deserted him. They sat shiva on him, so to speak. This young man comes out unscathed and greater. How is this possible? What's his secret? Who's this Joseph? And then next week's Torah portion, which I believe is the most beautiful words in the entire Torah, when the brothers come, and I always picture the scene, because Joseph promises Jacob that he's going to bury him with his parents, and they're in Egypt, and I can only imagine this beautiful scene of the brothers carrying their father from Egypt all the way to Hebron to bury him with his, with, with his parents and with his, with his wife, and, and, and this whole incredible experience, as is... Bakavadik, as is honorary, you know, honorable to a parent, how every child should treat a parent. And then on the way back, something fascinating happens. A lot of people forget about this part of the Torah. Something fascinating happens. The brothers start talking. While father was alive, Joseph didn't do anything to us. But ah, Joseph, for years, he's been harboring a secret resentment. He's the viceroy of Egypt. With a snap of a finger, he can kill us all. Guys, we're not making it back to Egypt. He's killing us all. They created an assumption. An assumption that the only reason why Joseph was treating them well is because their father was alive, out of respect for their father. This is an assumption that was created by 11 or 10 brothers, 11 brothers. And it was, it was a rational assumption. We don't talk about rational, not right? rational. No, because but I'm just saying it's understandable maybe, maybe. from their perspective. We don't think assumptions are good per- anytime. I know, but from their perspective. Assumptions are not good. From their eyes. If you want to know, ask. Mm. Course, don't assume. That is a, a, a strong Jewish and Kabbalistic principle. But it principle. teaches you a lot about their Perspective. If you want to know, ask. Don't assume anything ever. So they send messengers to Joseph asking for forgiveness. And then when the messengers come back with the, this ain't happening, they go themselves to Joseph. This is on the way back to Egypt. They, they prostrate themselves in front of Joseph, and they say, we will be your slaves. You understand? They are giving up their lives and their freedom and their emancipation for an assumption that this guy's been harboring a resentment against them for all these years. And what does Joseph say? He says what I believe are the most powerful words in the entire Torah. I think about these words almost every day. Am I instead of God? This is his answer to them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Could you imagine this? What this is his answer. 
Am I instead of God? I'll show you the. Okay. I, I'll show you in the in the verse. Let's go to Chumash right now. Yeah. It's very interesting. He says, "Am I instead of God? You intended harm, and God had a different plan." Right at the end of Parshat Vayechi, which is next week. Let me read to you directly. I'll read you first the English, and then I'll show you the words in Hebrew. This is um, chapter 50, verse 15 in Genesis. Yosef's brothers saw their father had died. They said, maybe Yosef will start to hate us and pay us back for all the bad things that we did to him. So they fabricated a plan and instructed messengers to go to Yosef and say, your father instructed us before his death, saying, this is what you should say to Yosef. Please will you now forgive the wrongdoing of your brothers and their sin, that they did evil things to you. So please, will you now forgive the wrongdoing of the servants of the God of your father? When the messenger spoke to Yosef, Yosef wept. Then the brothers went to Yosef. They fell down in front of him and said, look, we are your slaves. It's right in the verse. Yosef mm-hmm. said to them, Altira'u Ki hatachat elokim ano ani. Am I? He says, Do, don't be afraid. Am I instead of God? Then he continues, verse 20. The atem chashavtem alai ra'a elokim chashava litova liman. You plan to do bad things to me, but God intended that what you did to me should happen for good reasons in order to make things like they are today, keeping a great number of people alive. So don't be afraid now, he says. I will provide for you and your children. He continued to comfort them and spoke words to their hearts. You know what the next verse is? Yosef lived in Egypt, both he and his father's household. Yosef lived 110 years. Yosef saw the children of a third generation born to Ephraim, the son of Machir, Menashe's son, da 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 and Yosef died at the age of 110 years. They embalmed him and he was placed into a coffin in Egypt the end of the entire book of Genesis. The next story is about Egypt and the slavery. That's it. That's the end of Abraham. It's the end of Jacob. It's the end of the brothers. That's the end of Joseph. That's the last story we know about the tribes. The end. After that, there's a leap of like of like years. In, like Years. 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 years right? The bro- doesn't talk about the brothers dying. Wow. Doesn't talk about anything. That's it. That is the end of the book of Genesis. Unbelievable. Hmm. Talk about an ending. Seriously. And, 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 and they're going over to Joseph and they are thinking that he's a, a victim. Yeah, and he's like... And Joseph turns to them and says, the first thing is, you are not the author of my life. Hmm. You are not the author of my life. Victor Frankl. No. Say that again? Victor Frankl. Yeah. Yeah. No, but it's also interesting how he distinguishes their actions towards him from God's intention of those actions and the re- the ultimate reactions, right? So it's like, yeah, you did something bad to me. Fine. However, God intended that it should be so but he's for saying, a higher good. But he's saying a very powerful statement in that. He's saying, don't think you're off the hook. Don't think nothing happened. Mm-hmm. 
you did something. That's right. And you got to answer to God. Mm-hmm. Don't talk to me about it. Am I instead of God? It's not a conversation between us. I forgave you 20 years ago. Even at this point more. 40 years ago I forgave you. This is happening 40 years later. I forgave you already a long time ago. But you have some forgiveness to ask for. But it has nothing to do with me. Because you're not the author of my life. Yeah, he refuses to reduce everything to the personal realm. The personal grudge, the personal evil, the personal... Like, there's a higher scheme. I believe, at least as someone who studied the Torah a little bit, these are the most powerful words in the whole Torah. And it's so real in our lives. I think that there are two types of Holocaust survivors. Those who lived the Joseph life and those who didn't. There are some survivors that victimized themselves their entire lives. And they were right to victimize. And Joseph was right to be a victim. And people who are survivors of anything are right to be victims. If, if you stay only in this world, you're right. And I'm not, I'm not at all passing judgment in any way. I, my eyes never saw the horrors that these people saw. And thank God I'm not a survivor. And I do believe that to a certain element, I'm a third generation survivor because a lot of elements of my life have been messed up as a result of it. But I'm not a victim either. But there are, there are multi-generational effects to these things, obviously. Tremendous. How, how could there not be? Tremendous. It's always very strange from, uh, it's always very strange from, from our perspective of, uh, of Sephardi Jews. Uh, we know that this is like, obviously at this point, a foundational aspect of Jewish psychology, but we're not viscerally um, part of it. We're not. I mean, we are intellectually part of it. We, conceptually we are, but viscerally and emotionally, we have, like, it's, it's very strange, you know, that, that, that whole, uh, the, you see how central it is to Israeli identity, to Jewish psychology, to Jewish identity, and we feel it, I, I definitely feel it, when you see the horizon, how could you not feel it? But, okay, if you, if you go through Yad Vashem, what's the end of Yad Vashem? Is Israel, right? Absolutely. But, you know, we almost see it from, like you say, inside, outside, like we see it also from the outside of... No, but that's, you see, you see... Great people who, survivors of the Holocaust, who barely spoke about their story and never allowed it to, to create their narrative. Mm. I, there was a family that, whose father is a survivor, and he ended up coming to Montreal and building a beautiful business. And they asked me to interview him, because he's getting older. They asked me to, they wanted his story to be documented. So I went with a, a video camera and I interviewed him about a story which had never really been properly documented. And the entire time, I would ask him a question. Do you want to hear how I started my business? It wasn't even part of his narrative anymore. Mm-hmm. And here his family wants to hear his story. And it's a very, it was an amazing story of, of how he hid in a forest and, and, and he became a partisan and he was training uh, horses and he, the whole story, how the Germans tried to capture his, uh, his you know, the island that there were a bunch of, there's a thousand people living on this island. And the Germans came and they had these bridges and they fell in the water. I mean, it's beautiful, beautiful stories that he was telling me. But it wasn't, you can see, it wasn't part of his life. Mm. The whole time. Eh, you want to hear how I started my business? <laughs> <laughs> that was his life. That became, he came to the new world. He built up a beautiful life of children and grandchildren. And, and he wasn't a victim. And he isn't a victim. And I think it's really... If there's something that we can learn from the story of Joseph, since it's so apropos, since it's in our, our Torah reading now, it's something great to think about. And also think about our own lives and things that have happened to us or to our parents and grandparents in our own lives. I think that this idea of being a victim and going back to the slavery and going back to women's rights, it's all the same conversation. Are we victims or are we not victims? Do we want to teach our children victimhood? Or do we want to teach our children to thrive and be successful in the new world? Because there's so much opportunity to be successful.
yeah, in a way, you're holding on to the persecution by being a victim. You hold on to the persecution becomes the central fact of your identity, even if it's no longer there, or even if it's there now to a degree that you could overcome it, even if it's still there, right? Even if the conditions of your own victimhood are still existing in the world, but you're in a situation where you can transcend them as Jacob. Jacob emotionally could have felt just as slighted in front of his brothers 40, Joseph, yeah. 40 years later. He could have felt just as slighted, right? They're still the same people. They're still there. They're still... And look how people think about think about people who who face their older brothers or or their, their his older brothers. I mean, he should feel like the little child. The Freudian within him is like this little child. You know, he's going to go into child mode in front of his brothers because mm-hmm. you know, oh, those are my brothers. Like that's what he should have done. Yeah, he should have gone right back into his child, his inner child. That's what Freud would have said. That would have been the natural thing to do. That would have been the natural thing to do, but he transcended that. He went beyond that. <laughs> yeah. And this is all a preface still to the Sefirot. We haven't even gotten into the Sefirot yet. Next week, we're going to actually start talking about the, the, the intellectual Sefirot. Great. Excellent. Hi, Rabbi Bernath here. I have some great news for you. My popular four-week course, Kabbalah for Everyone, is available right now for free for the next 50 people who download it. All you have to do is go to www.theloverabbi.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, and you're going to see the download button right there. In this course, I talk about the Kabbalistic secrets to relationships, to wealth, to happiness and balance. This special offer has been dedicated in loving memory of Ellie Dorfman. I look forward to hearing from you and hope you enjoy the course. Now on to today's episode.